Good morning again. What we've been talking about for the past few weeks is God's kingdom building project. We've been looking at that through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And when I say that, I'm not talking about something physical we have to build. I'm talking about how Christians' lives, what we say and what we do, are used for God's purposes. There's not something mystical or magical about it. We're doing what God has called his people to do, what we are supposed to be doing. We're sharing the gospel, as Tom talked about, or we're teaching others about God. We're modeling Christ-likeness to those around us. We're looking at that in the example of the Israelites. They had been in exile away from the promised land for over 70 years, and then they start coming back gradually, not all at once, but they come back and they're asking, now what? What do we do? They started by rebuilding their center of worship, and now at the part that we're at, they are starting a very important work. They are going to build, be a visible demonstration of God's kingdom on earth. Their little nation will represent, this is what God does for his people. For them, that looked like rebuilding a wall around their city so they could look like a city that God was taking care of. For us, that looks like living for God. It looks like speaking of him in a world that doesn't know him. And when we do that, when we speak for God, we represent him. Unfortunately, we're going to encounter opposition. There will be people, there will be forces, there's an enemy of God that will try to stop us from following him. And our question is, how do we respond when that opposition comes? Well, that's what our text today in Nehemiah chapter 4 is about. In chapter 4 and in the next couple chapters, there'll be many different strategies that opposition will try to stop God's people from doing what they were called to do. But we'll see a pattern in this passage. There's some opposition, and then God's people respond. And the response we'll see in this chapter is that they pray, and then they press on. When opposition comes, they pray, and then press on. And whether that opposition is people mocking them, whether it's enemies plotting against them, or if it's their own discouragement, their response is still to pray and press on. And they're able to do this because they know that God is great and awesome and that he will fight for them. And he'll fight for us too. Let's pray and then we'll take a look at this passage. Lord, thank you for being a great and awesome God who fights for us. Thank you that we see that especially in the work of your son who came and lived for us and died for sin so that we could be restored to you. Pray, God, that as we live for you, as we seek to build your kingdom, that when the opposition comes, we will respond like your people. We will pray, we will trust you, and we will press on. Teach us that through your word today. May we not base our confidence in our own strength, though, but in you, again, the great an awesome God who fights for us, who saves us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. It's a longer passage, so we're going to read it as we go through. So we'll start with this first example of opposition that God's people encounter. And the first example of opposition they meet with is mocking, mocking. If you're using the outline that came with it, the first blank is mocking. Let me read verses one through three, where their enemies mock and insult God, God's work and his mission and those who follow him. So verses one through three of chapter four, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. 
Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on their wall, he will break down their stone wall. The first opposition they encounter is the mocking of their enemies. This one man, Sanballat, he hears they are rebuilding. He becomes angry. He's greatly enraged, incensed, and furious. He's worried about what they are doing, but his response is not to attack them, but instead to mock, to jeer, to ridicule. We've met this man before, Sanballat. He was possibly at this time governor of the territory just above them of Samaria. And he had deep financial interest in Jerusalem. He's upset that these walls are going up. They're cutting in to his bottom line and to his power. We talked about him two weeks ago when we met him in chapter 2. This is what we read about him. In verse 10, we read that Sanballat the Hornite and that other guy, Topiah the Anamite servant, when they heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And then a little bit later, when they start rebuilding, Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, another man, Geshem the Arab, when they heard of it, they jeered at us. They despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? This is their common response to jeer and mock God's people. And the truth is that almost every work of God in the world is opposed by someone. Someone opposes it. And there's a couple of reasons for that. It could be that there's, there's an enemy of God, the, the devil, Satan, and so he can motivate some of that. But he doesn't have to work all that hard because as people, we are, we're selfish. We want what we want when we want it. On the other hand, all God-focused believers are passionate about their Lord. And when they're passionate about doing what God wants, if that runs against what someone else desires, then they'll be led to criticize So we should ask ourselves, are we a selfish criticizer or are we a selfless God follower? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't tell somebody when we think they're doing something wrong to keep them safe. I'm not saying that, but we should check our motives, whether our desire to criticize comes from something selfish in us, something we want, or a genuine concern for someone else. Sanballat was just concerned about himself, and so what he does is he speaks to those around him, his posse of armed thugs that he has, to mock this small number of feeble Jews. He says, will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they revive? Will they bring to life the stones that were destroyed? Will they rebuild them so that they function? These stones were knocked down. The city was burned. They seemed to be useless. They were good enough for God to use. In many ways, they're like the Israelites themselves. They were not rich or strong. They were not a powerful people, but God used them. And while Sanballat is mocking them for what they're doing, they're there building the wall. He even mocks their worship. He thought their sacrifices, their worship of God was not doing anything. I think the New Living Translation of verse 2 that we read really helps us with this. Uh, Verse 2 in the NLT says, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? 
Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they think by worshiping God, he'll help them to do this task? He even asked, will they restore it by themselves? Well, spoiler alert, but yes. Yes, they will (laughs) restore it by themselves. There's another guy, Tobiah, and he says, well, you know, if a fox climbed up on their wall, he could knock it down. And that's a cute little joke, but the truth is there's actually a wall going up. Uh, Last time we talked, there wasn't a wall, but now they've started, and it's starting to be built. And his mocking pride will come before a fall at the hands of God and his people. There's uh, another example of an enemy of God mocking his people, and that's Goliath, who's facing against David. And when David, a little boy, comes before him, the Philistine Goliath says to him, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. Well, that's another story that, if you, in case you don't remember the ending, David does beat Goliath. It doesn't end well for him. And I'm sure both Goliath and here, Sanballat and Tobiah, I thought that they probably thought they were being hilarious, and their friends were probably laughing very hard. But you know what? Who cares? Because they were wrong. It wasn't the Israelites' wall. It wasn't their wall or city. It was God's. And by mocking God, they may be covering up their fear that maybe they're right. Maybe their God is with them. And they have to laugh to make themselves feel better. And so as these enemies are mocking, how do God's people respond? Well, verses 4 and 5 tell us they respond with prayer. When the enemies mock, they pray. Instead of talking back to the mockers, instead of retaliating, they talk to God. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. This is Nehemiah speaking now. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." He talks to God. He asks God to work and act. The people rely on prayer. As Pastor Chuck Swindle said, let's call this what it is. It is spiritual warfare. They are about God's mission. And he says battles of that sort are best fought from a kneeling position. And what he means is if we're going to fight a spiritual battle, God's given us a purpose, a goal, and someone, something standing in our way, the best weapon to take is to go to God in prayer. Not as a last resort, but as our first weapon of choice. That's what Nehemiah does. He asks God to hear the taunts, the insults, the reproach of his despised people. They're held in contempt. This is common for Nehemiah. He regularly turns to God in prayer. As we've been studying through this book, we've talked about that, how he was very diligent in prayer, how he made short, desperate prayers to God when he needed him. Prayer is how God's people respond to opposition. As Psalm 123 says, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the type of prayer Nehemiah is saying, God, we're tired of hearing this, but we have to depend on you. Now, the latter part of his prayer kind of sounded a little harsh, but it's similar to other Old Testament passages where those who knew God 
called on him to act, to bring justice on his enemies. The words that Nehemiah said are very similar to some from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. So forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. And when we hear words like that, one song we sang today, the, the Lord reigns, beautiful song, it has that kind of odd phrase in it, a fire goes before him, burns up all his enemies. That, that's coming from the Psalms, from God saying, saying, God, we need you to act, to bring justice on your enemies. But note what's happening, either in that song or, or in this prayer or in Nehemiah's prayer. The call is, God, you need to act. You need to conquer these enemies. You need to conquer their sin. Overrule them. It's not that God's people are, are doing that. They're saying, God, you need to act. His people are trusting in him. They're not retaliating against these people. And that's what would happen here. The people would pray, and they'd get back to work building the wall. They didn't launch a preemptive strike on these nations around them. They focused on what God had called them to do. So Nehemiah addresses God. He says, God, I what these enemies wish for us, may you bring that on their head. Put them in captivity like we were in captivity. He asked God, do not ignore their sin. Do not blot it out. Do not remove it without bringing your justice on it. This isn't Nehemiah out for revenge, but he's seeking to honor God. He's realizing these people are attacking what God is doing, so they're really attacking God. Yes, the insults are aimed at the Israelites, but they're really an offense to the Lord. One psalm that, that is like this the whole way is Psalm 79. And verse 12 of that says, Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they taunted us. No, the taunts with which they taunted you, O Lord. Nehemiah is concerned that they are attacking God. Not that his pride is hurt, but that they are offending God by rejecting what he is doing. Nehemiah is far more concerned about the wrath of God than upsetting Sanballat or his friends. He's much more concerned about God. And he knows the truth that God will bring his justice in his timing and his way. And God brings his judgment on those who do not know him. Now, when we read things like that, how do we take that? How do we act with that knowledge now? Well, we can learn one thing from it. We should pray that God will bring justice, that he will stop the wicked from doing what they're doing, from opposing him. But we can also pray, as, as we talked about earlier with the video we watched, we can also pray that, God, that these people would know God, that they would come to have a relationship with him. When God brings judgment on someone, it's often intended to push them towards repentance and turning from sin. We don't know the final fate of every person that we meet. What we do know is that we deserved God's judgment. We deserve to have these things come upon us. And that's why God sent his son. When Jesus came, he lived for us and he died. He paid for our sin and rebellion against God. By doing that, now this, this judgment that these Psalms are talking about, that Nehemiah is praying for, it doesn't come on us, not because of something we've done, but if we know Jesus and rely on him, if we've turned from sin, embraced Christ, then we can be restored 
to God. So when we see someone mocking, we can pray, God, bring your justice and judgment, whether it's, it's on them for their sin or if they come to know your son, then you've already paid for it through Christ. God, bring your justice. After Nehemiah prays, then it's time for the people to press on. They've prayed, and now it's time for them to press on and get back to work. That's what verse 6 says. Look at that. It says they pray, and then verse 6, very simply, so we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah and the Israelites, they didn't respond to these taunts, these threats, and these insults. They kept working. They had a mind to work. Their whole heart was in it. Nehemiah had already responded once to them. The very first time they said, hey, what are you doing? He said, we're doing God's work. Probably said we have permission to do this. And so now there's nothing more to say. They can taunt all they want. It wasn't important to Nehemiah to win the verbal argument against these people. He didn't need to win the argument. He didn't need to look good in whatever the BC social media. He didn't need to do that. He continued what God had called him to do. He was focused on finishing the task. God had called him and the people to rebuild the city wall. So that's what they did. And they did it with enthusiasm. As the rest of verse 6 said, they're, they're halfway there already. They just started a little bit ago and they're already halfway there. There's debate about how big the wall is, but at this point it was probably at least 6 feet, if not 10 or 12 feet. And it was probably eight or nine feet thick. This is a big wall. They've done a lot of work already because the people are acting in faith. God has given them a heart, a mind, a desire to work. And he's sustained it as they're doing what God has called them to do. This was their response to opposition. They prayed and then they pressed on. They put prayer and action together. And both are necessary for us. If we just pray and say, God, help us to do this, and then we choose to sin and disobey God, well, that's not going to work. We're not going to do what God has called us to do. We're not going to share his word with others. But on the other hand, we can't say, all right, we're going to do what God says, but not spend time in prayer. Nehemiah knew that prayer was more important than winning in an earthly sense, responding to the people in front of him. They prayed, and they press on. However, this isn't the end of the opposition, because since mocking didn't work, they now resort to plots and to discouragement. The enemy now plots against God's people and seeks to discourage. Even though they're doing the right thing, the situation is going to get worse. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. They say, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Enemies now are starting to plot. The names, it lists a bunch of different people there, and what it's supposed to be conveying is that the Israelites are surrounded by their enemies. Sanballat ruled the area to the north. Tobiah would have been over to the east. The Arabs would have been in the south. 
the Ashdodites would have been over to their west. They are surrounded by these enemies who are plotting against them. But still, as Nehemiah tells us, the breaches, the gaps in the wall are beginning to be closed. The work is still going on despite these enemies. And so now they are very angry. Their questioning did not work. Their mocking did not work. They're angry their plans are failing. They're losing political power. They're losing money. They're losing influence over this area. The wall is being built. So now it's time for them to resort to direct action. These enemies plan, they conspire, they plot to attack Jerusalem to cause confusion and trouble in the city. They're plotting like Psalm 83 describes how they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They're plotting how they can stop them from this work. Now, if you remember, the Israelites have permission to do this. God has said, well, God has told them to, but Nehemiah also got permission from the king, the ruler of this area, the king of Persia, said you can go and rebuild this wall. But there's a problem there in Jerusalem, the king of Persia, he's probably about 1,100 miles away at this point. If their neighbors around them decided to attack them quickly, it could be devastating. They were very vulnerable to the plots of the people around them. And that may sound like a strong word, but the truth is people may plot against us. We may deal with opposition to pursuing God, perhaps at our place of work, Someone doesn't like how we represent the Lord. Or maybe at school, our our friends aren't pleased with the decisions we make that we don't go along with others. Perhaps for some of us, maybe even in the home, a loved one may not be thrilled with how we represent our Lord and Savior. They don't approve of our decisions or our beliefs. They may work against you or, or plan to keep you from serving God, pressure you to say you don't have to live for God in that way. We should remember, though, like the Israelites, that God's people will meet opposition when they follow him. In our text, we'll come back to verse 9. I'm going to jump ahead to verses 10 through 12 because it unpacks more of what's happening in this situation. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. In verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near those other people, they came from all directions and they said to us 10 times, you must return to us. The laborers are getting weary. The task is massive. And so they become discouraged. Not only are the enemies plotting, but the people themselves are becoming discouraged. Verse 10 is very poetic in the original language. They're lamenting with poetry. We feel unable to do this. There's so much rubble and rubbish that's left over. When the walls were first destroyed well over 100 years before this happened, as well as when they started at one time and had to stop and many parts of the wall were burned. And even though they're halfway there, we just heard that good news, they've built the wall, it's joined to half its height, now they're starting to lose heart. Maybe it, was, it may have been really exciting when they first realized, hey, we're halfway there. And then they realized, oh, 
we're only halfway there? It's remarkable how that discouragement can come in. They're tired. They're ready to give up. The enemies are around them, threatening them with a surprise attack. They're wary of what they'll do. The morale is lowering. And in this place of fear, can sneak in. One scholar writing about this, Mervyn Brenneman, said, external pressure amplifies internal weakness. I thought that was insightful. When there's external pressure, something's happening on the outside, it amplifies what's happening in our hearts. If we have fear or lack of trust in God, we're not sure that he's working in this area that can be exposed. And when we're pushed down, what overflows is our fear and our discouragement. Not only was this happening inside the city, but it seems that they were also discouraging those on the outside as they plotted. Verse 12 talks about that the Jews, the Israelites, their friends and their family in towns around Jerusalem, they came multiple times. It tells us 10 times they came and they begged the people to stop building the wall, come home to our towns. And the reason is they're afraid. They're afraid of these other nations that they'll come and attack them. And Let's just say this is really low by these other countries, really despicable. They're threatening to attack the families of these people who are building the walls while they're away working at the city. And in all this, we see the damage of discouragement. When we're discouraged, it can cause the work of God to stop. It's like a flat tire on the road, unable to move forward. I remember the first time I got a flat tire, I was coming home from seminary, and I apologize if I mispronounced this, but I was in Dinwiddie County, Virginia, middle of nowhere on a road, when a police officer came by. I didn't understand a single word he said. I, I, I appreciate that he was trying to help, but I, I could not understand what he was saying. But I wasn't moving home. had to get the tire fixed, and then I could continue my journey. Discouragement is a flat tire on our life. We're unable to move forward. It's not something we can ignore. You can try driving with a flat tire, but you won't get very far. And like, likewise with discouragement, we can't ignore it. It's something we have to deal with. As the book of Proverbs says, a man's spirit will endure sickness. We can deal through sickness, health issues, but a crushed spirit, when we're discouraged, who can bear that? We can experience this as we look at ourselves or or if we look around us at the church. If we look at ourselves personally, we can sometimes wonder, are the things that I'm doing for God, are they making a difference at all? Is the time I try to spend reading the Bible, does does that really help me? Does all this time I spend in prayer, is God actually doing something with that? The time I try to serve Him, the the things I try to do for the Lord, do they even make a difference? Perhaps we share truth with someone and and they don't listen to it and we wonder, am I making a difference? Or there's some issue we're trying to overcome, we think we've got it and we slip back. and wonder, is this even worth it? Sometimes we can even look at the church. You may or may not have seen recently, I've mentioned it once or twice, uh, there's been Surveys, things coming out that, that church membership in the U.S. is at the lowest it's been in a long time. It seems to be going down and down, and that can be discouraging. Now, very quickly, let me say that that's not true in many other parts of the world, but that, that is true here, and it can be discouraging. 
And I'll admit, I can sometimes look around and wonder, God, what are you doing? It doesn't seem like you're working. I wonder if we can reach those around us. But the truth I have to remind myself is that God is still at work, and his call on us is to pray and press on in what he has called us to do. That's what Nehemiah and the Israelites do. If you're wondering, hey, Pastor John, this slide looks very similar to one you had up earlier. That's because it's the same point. The same thing happens again. In Scripture, they sometimes repeat things because, because humans sometimes were slow to get the point, and so God tells us it again. Look at verse 9 in our passage. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah prays, and he takes action. This is a wise approach. He takes those doubts and fears and discouragement, and he turns them to prayer, and then he moves on with the task. He addresses his prayer to God, to to no one else. They pray for divine protection, something we can do at all times. Even if we're not immediately experiencing opposition or pressure, we can still call out to God to be prepared when trouble comes. In the words of Psalm 32, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, to God, at a time when you may be found. Because when pressure comes, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. But God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is the second time we've seen them praying. They've continued in prayer throughout this situation. They knew they needed to depend on God because with all the opposition around them, opposition can bring temptation. It can bring opportunities to compromise with sin. Jesus knew this. He told his disciples shortly before he went to the cross to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit What we want indeed is willing, but our flesh, what we actually do, is weak. We need to pray so we can persevere through opposition and not fall into sin. So we pray, and then what do they do? Again, this slide will probably look familiar. We press on, pray and press on. And once again, they keep working. They they deal with the threat in the immediate But the opposition doesn't stop. Their circumstances have not changed. They're still surrounded by these enemies who mock them, who threaten to attack them, who surround them. That's still there. Nothing's really changed in their circumstances, but they keep working. They pray, and then they do what is needed. Again, Pastor Chuck Swindoll said, we are called to action that is fueled by faith. Any worthwhile endeavor will involve both both prayer, faith, trust in God, and acting, doing what he has said. That verse 9 we talked about says that they prayed to our God, but they also set a guard as a protection. They watched their enemies day and night. They were always vigilant. They set a watch with shifts. They carefully planned to protect themselves in God's work. They needed to avoid falling to the enemy, needed to avoid falling into sin. And then the rest of the chapter tells us some more they do to prepare in case the enemies come. I'm going to read 13 through the end of the chapter now, what Nehemiah does to press on in this work. Verse 13 says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. 
I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the officials, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 15 says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then we all returned to the wall each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored with the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. I said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall, far from one another. And so verse 20, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. Half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And 22, I also said to the people of that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is Nehemiah taking action and pressing on. When he sees that they're threatening and they seem to be planning an attack, he stations clans, families in the gaps of the wall. He calls them to fight. Again, verse 14 said, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is a call to fight that God's people would be familiar with. The commander of the army under David named Joab said something similar in 2 Samuel. He said, be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Nehemiah expresses the same desire, and then he stations the people at the gaps in the wall, the places he knew were vulnerable to attack. He makes sure those who are outside the wall can see, oh, they are prepared for people to assault the city. He knew where the weaknesses in the wall were. He was prepared to defend Jerusalem. He expected if the enemies are going to attack, they're going to attack the weak spots. And so for us, if we're going to press on through opposition, we should know our weaknesses. If there's a place, an area in our life where we've fallen to sin, we know that we've gone against God in a particular area, well, we may fall in that area again. And if we know that there's a circumstance, a person, a situation that will lead us to temptation in that area, we'll be tempted to sin against God, then we shouldn't go there, but instead press on in what God has called us to. Well, the enemies see that they're positioned in these gaps of the wall, and they realize that the Jews are waiting for them, and their surprise advantage has been lost. God has frustrated their plan, which is what God does. In the words of Job 5, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Now, what's interesting here is 
this putting people in position and things, this was all Nehemiah. Nehemiah did this. God didn't pick up people and drop them in the gaps of the wall. Nehemiah ordered them to go there. He executed the plan, but he knows that it was God alone who frustrated the plan, who convinced the enemies to give up, to abandon their scheme. God gave his people the confidence they needed to persevere. And no attack comes. And I like how 15 words it. It's not what we expect. When our enemies heard, it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan. We celebrated the great work God had done to save us. No, that's not what it says. It says, we all return to the wall, each one to his work. Instead of taking time to celebrate, they go right back to work. They are on God's mission. They have an assignment from the true king of the universe to rebuild the walls of this city. The immediate threat is gone, but they're prepared for the defense. They continue to pray and watch. They return to the work and press on. And from then on, half of the people worked while half of them stood guard. And even those who worked would have their weapons at the ready. They were praying, they were trusting God, but they also took the steps that were needed to make sure God's purposes advanced and continued. God doesn't always work in ways that are obviously miraculous, that, whoa, God did something incredible, changing the weather or something like that. He does those things in Scripture, but more often than not, God accomplishes His purposes through ordinary means, through the things we see every day. We should take wise, practical action when we serve God. Here, the people were spread out. They were vulnerable. So Nehemiah has a plan. They won't fight alone because there's a man with a trumpet by Nehemiah, and he could blow it to summon and rally the people if they needed to defend the wall. So the Israelites work hard. They work all day from sunup until it's dark enough to see stars. And they even spent the night in the city. They're being watchful against sin, but it also helps keep people from deserting because they're staying at the job site. But more importantly, it shows how important Nehemiah viewed this project. He knew that if they built this wall, the city could represent to all these nations around them, this is what a relationship with the true God looks like. He knew it was important to finish. And so no matter what, they kept working. They refused to be intimidated. Verse 23 has different translations. It's a little confusing what's happening there, but the point overall is that there were some people constantly ready for battle, including Nehemiah. He's the leader, the supervisor, the one in charge, but he is right there working and ready to fight along with everyone else. He's a true spiritual leader, not lording over people, but serving in with, through God's people. In this case, the Israelites, in our case, a spiritual leader would serve with others through the church. So that's our passage, and, and what do we learn from it? Well, we learn that no matter what comes, God's people press on in the task he has called them to. And I know it's really easy for Pastor John to stand up here and say, you need to press on in what you're doing without you know, specifically addressing whatever circumstance you're encountering in your life. And it's also true that it will be difficult to follow God in a world that is against him. And I realize that all of us are in very different places, stations, situations in life, and the specific strategy that works for one person might not work for someone else. Even if we don't feel like, well, I don't feel like there's people opposing me, maybe you're someone who stays home with 
kids or grandkids or, or someone else you're watching, well, then you still can prepare children for a world that might not always accept them. And for those of us who do go out in the world, it's, there's a lot of places where it's hard to obey God. We've talked about them. It could be with work, it could be with school, it could be friends that we encounter who try to push us away from following the Lord, family that discourages us from doing what God has said. Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's something like a health issue that discourages you. You feel like you're not able to live for the Lord the way you used to. But no matter what happens, our call is to continue building God's kingdom as we can, whether that's sharing with others or by ourselves, growing to be more like Jesus. Pastor Charles Spurgeon, speaking about this, said, let us press forward, dear brothers and sisters, never content, never satisfied, till we wake up in his, in Christ's likeness. Now, those of you who are here regular know that I like Pastor Spurgeon, so I like that quote, but I, I think the Apostle Paul says it a little better. We read this earlier. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made this my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't use exactly the same words, but as Nehemiah and the Israelites demonstrated, he's trusting God, he's praying, and he presses Now, the wrong way to leave this message would be to think, okay, well, pastor says that I need to make sure I'm praying. I need to make sure I'm praying on. I've got a lot to do when I walk out of here. That's, that's not quite the right attitude to leave with because the way we press on is not by mustering up strength within us, but based on a key truth because God is great and awesome and he will fight for us. We are able to press on because God is great and awesome and he will fight for us. We see this in two little verses in this passage. Let's go back to verse 14. Nehemiah looked, he arose, he said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And as you remember the Lord, who's great and awesome, then fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Or consider verse 20, where Nehemiah says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, come prepared to fight, because our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah calls all the people to be prepared to fight with the confidence that God is great and awesome, that God is glorious. So we do not have to be afraid. That's a common command in God's word. It's based on trust. God can overcome our enemies. Whatever we are encountering in our life, he can overcome that. And in our moments of our own discouragement, Nehemiah encourages us to redirect our focus to the Lord, to remember who he is, the God who is great and awesome. As the Old Testament law said in Deuteronomy 7, you shall not be in dread of the people you meet, for the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a great and awesome God. 
perhaps you think you want to live for God, but you experience opposition, but, but you don't even know God. You don't have a relationship with him. There is great power and greater salvation that's available through Jesus Christ. If you know this great and awesome God, then you can persevere through whatever comes. Yes, the situation may be, may be terrible and awful. You may suffer greatly, but God will be with you, the great and awesome God. But you need to know him, turn away from sin, and come to know him. That's a conversation you need to have with someone. It's a conversation you need to have with God first and foremost. But if you need help with that, talk to me about it. And I'd love to talk to you about how you can know this great and awesome God. But just because we need to know God is great and awesome to come to know him, the same is true for those of us who have a relationship with God. Our motive for hope, the way we can persevere and press on, is by knowing, yes, God is great. He is glorious. He is awesome. And I can trust in his delivering power. We see that by looking at God. We can also be motivated by our spiritual family, our church that he has placed us into, that he has adopted us into. We should want to see God work through his church, share with others, make disciples, fulfill his great commission, his call on his people, because it is worth it. The world needs to know this God who is great and awesome. And yes, he reveals himself in so many ways every day, but the way they know him is by his people saying, this thing that you see, this amazing world around us, it comes from a God who is great and awesome. That's dependent on us to put away our distractions and proclaim him so that lives may be saved. And then when opposition comes, we can trust that great and awesome God because he will fight for us. Remember verse 20 said, our God will fight for us. The ultimate victory is certain for those who trust in the Lord. If we're doing what we know God wants, Nehemiah knew that. He knew if this city built, it will draw people to God. He knew it was what God wanted, and so he was confident in God's protection. And he was also confident in what God's people had known for hundreds of years before him. The Old Testament law said, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. The leader of the Israelites, Joshua, probably read that verse from Deuteronomy, and so he's knew that one man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. This is a delicate balance for us to try to understand and grasp. We're kind of going back and forth between this prayer, trust in God, and our own action. It's, it's tricky to explain because we want to lean heavily one way or another. So when I'm saying this God who is great and awesome and who will fight for us. What I'm not saying is a common phrase that's thrown around, let go and let God. So either we say, God, I want you to do this, and I'm just going to sit back until you make it happen. That's not what happens in our passage. The Israelites were ready for battle. They all had their weapons. They were ready at any moment for an attack, but they're still trusting in God that he will protect them and fight for them. They're acting, they're living in trust. They're pursuing God and obeying him. But they still remember that he is the one who is in control. And if the enemy attacks, they will be the ones fighting the enemy. They know that, but they also know that victory or defeat is not in their hands to determine, but it's in God's hands. Yes, we will meet opposition if we're following God. It's difficult to live for the Lord when there's a culture, friends, maybe even family 
against us. But as we sang just before the sermon, the battle belongs to the Lord. And he is worth giving up everything else in this life for him because he alone is worthy.